<laughs> so tonight, our title is God's Wisdom on Money. Now, before the study, if you would have asked me, Courtney, what does the Bible say about money? I would have said, uh, I would have given you some like do's and don'ts and sprinkled in a couple verses. I would have said something like, um, well, we should tithe. It's commanded. Um, give to help others in need. Don't be greedy. Don't hoard your resources. Um, don't let money be an idol. And I would have said 2 Corinthians 9-7, where God loves a cheerful giver. And 1 Timothy 1-10, the love of money is the root of all evil. And those are all true. And I might reference some of that in this lesson later. But there is so much more the Bible says about money. As you study this large topic of money, you will see that wealth and poverty are spoken right alongside each other. Um, I read a statistic that said the Bible has around 500 verses about prayer and faith, but well over 2,000 verses about money. Wow. That was shocking. And Jesus' parables, 40% of them deal with money. Uh, clearly, God has plenty to say about money, wealth, and poverty. There is much to say, and there are many who get it wrong. Many believe and speak wrongly about what the Bible says with regards to money. They pick a verse, they talk about it out of the context of how the verse was written, and they'll twist it to what they want it to say. So here's the hottest wrong thinking, okay? The prosperity theology or prosperity gospel. It's easy to see where it's formed and accepted. You see, you could take a few promises from the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenant, you know, those promises of they're blessed with land. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you love, if you know God, you get favor from him mm -hmm. and you're blessed because of knowing God. So you take some of that out of its original context, its national context, and you recite some of Jesus's statements about receiving whatever you ask in faith and voila, health and wealth gospel. That financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. And that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. Well, that just doesn't always happen. We're not promised health and wealth. We're actually promised hardship and persecution. Remember Jesus and John says, they hated me, they will hate you. There will be hard times. Living the life of a Christian is harder than if you turn your back on God, honestly. Um, so that, that's wrong. Prosperity gospel, that's wrong. Now, if you swing the other way, um, and some that, that opposite of the prosperity theology is called austerity theology. Basically, that's extreme plainness. So not health and wealth, but like extreme plainness. And they would say, look at Jesus. He had nowhere to lay his head. The story of the rich wrong ruler where he was told to sell everything if he wanted to follow Jesus. You take those things and you can say, oh, money is bad and all those who have it, that's bad. Well, that's wrong too. Now you can make a biblical argument that God loves rich guys. Just look at Abraham and Job and Zacchaeus and all their wealth. Oh, look at how he blessed all the obedient kings in the Old Testament. Well, that's wrong also. But if you want to swing the pendulum away from that thinking, you'd say, well, Jesus, God hates rich guys. Look at the rich man in Lazarus or the book of James. So I say all that because really this is an important topic and many people get it wrong. Even Christians get it wrong. 
So how should we think about money and possessions? What biblical principles should we keep in mind as we view health and not health, as we view wealth and poverty, as we handle our own wealth or, or poverty? The Bible speaks much on the topic of money, wealth, and poverty. So there's no way I can possibly, in 20-some minutes, say everything, cover everything that the Bible has to talk about with regards to money. So tonight, I hope to wet your whistle on this topic. I've prayed the Lord will show his glory tonight in the text, that his glory will be shown in the lesson and in our discussion. Also, my desire is to give you hope encouragement, and maybe impress you to go home and have your own study by digging deeper on this topic. There's so much the Bible has to say about money, which is good because really there's no other, there are few things as relevant as money because it applies to any age, at any time of your life, in any time era. Um, so it, we really need to have a good theology on money. What is the right thinking? What does God say about money? So tonight, our theme is God gives riches to his people to teach them about what really matters. God gives riches to his people to teach them about what really matters. And I have four, uh, four points I want to cover that go with our theme. And the first one is God wants us to see riches are a gift from God. God wants us to see riches are a gift from God. You see, God gives you what you need to live. God provides for our needs and then even the needs of our dependents. Why don't you turn to Proverbs 27? I'm going to read Proverbs 27, 23 through 27. Proverbs 27. Uh, is that right? Sorry, I'm sorry. Yes, 23. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for, for your food, for the food of your household and the maintenance for your girls. So we see here it's a different economy, right? Every time we read about economy of life, it's usually agriculture because that was the time. So it's, it's a different economy, but it's the same point. God will provide and we are to manage our finances so we can meet the needs of who we are responsible for. Now remember Proverbs, it's a general truth. And yet we do see this general truth played out and even promised in both the Old and New Testament. But remember, Proverbs are general truths. They're not promises, but some of these general truths we will see as promises outside of the book of Proverbs. Um, if you go to Philippians 4, 19, um, I'm, I'm just going to read what I have. Philippians 4, 19, Paul says, And this same God who takes care of, of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul also talks in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Jesus also conveyed to his disciples in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. He says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. What I've just read are verses you guys have probably heard before. But see, Jesus teaches, Paul also, that we can trust God to provide for the righteous. Now, not just in the New Testament do we see God providing for his people, but in the Old Testament, Three weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, in my preschool class in junior church, so the older kids would have gotten it too, we talked about um, Elijah. And Elijah, the prophet in 1 Kings 17, confronted the king who was wicked and said, God's punishing you and there's going to be a drought. And the king was angry and God said, Elijah, take off. Just go because he's going to come for you. He didn't have bags packed. He didn't have, you know... He didn't have a cooler with food, and so he just took off. And now there's a drought coming, and I told the kids, if you want food, where do you get it? And I go, Mom. And I'm like, okay, but where does Mom get the food? <laughs> and they're like, Kroger, Aldi. I'm like, yeah. I go, there's no Kroger and Aldi where Elijah was going. There's no food. And so how was he going to live? I said, God took care of him. And they were so freaked out to some degree because what? how did God provide? Well, there was this brook he was by or a river or stream, whatever word you want to use. And ravens brought him food every day, brought him bread every day. You see this in 1 Kings 17 verses 2 through 7. And I said, does that remind you of another time God provided for his people that didn't have an Aldi or a Kroger? And I had to really pull it out. But one of them thought about, like, all well, the Israelites. I go, yes, the manna and the quail when they were wandering around in, in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking up what verse to get in Deuteronomy for that. And I came across this, which Genesis 2.9. No, no, no. I'm not there yet. Deuteronomy 29.5. It says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off on your feet. I had never thought about that before. And they didn't have... And their feet never swelled. But, like, they didn't have anywhere to, like, replenish their clothing or their shoes. Wherever you no, shop for your clothes and no shoes. Target. They didn't have our Amazon. <laughs> they didn't have Amazon Prime. I, I never thought about that before. If you wore the same pair of shoes for six months... Mm -hmm. If you're a mother, you know you have to replace those shoes really fast. <laughs> like, you do. Like, you, they wear out. So I, that verse, I, God just got even greater in my eyes. Of course he did. He took care of them, not just their food, but their clothing. That mm -hmm. was so great. But you know what? If you go back farther into Genesis 2.9, it's the garden. God provided a garden for Adam and Eve to eat. And out of the ground, the Lord made a spring of every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, see, this is God's nature. He takes care of his people. He never changes and he won't stop caring for his people, which includes you and me. God will provide. Now, there's a warning here. What you think you need might not be what the Lord thinks you need. And I will pick on young people at the moment, but when you turn 16, you might think, I need a car. You don't need a car. But a six-year-old might think that is a need, right? Mm -hmm. My daughter's about to graduate from college. She might think she needs a job that pays just as much as, you know, someone who's been in the work field for 20 years. I, I don't know if she thinks that. But that sometimes in this society of me, 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 we can have wrong thinking of what 
we need. But God gives you what he knows you need. I'm not aware of anyone in here not having a place to lay their head. Thankfully, nobody's naked. We're all clothed. And I know we're all eating. And there's, cake. And, and there's even cake here for us. So God provides for his people. And just so you know, this warning is a warning of idolatry of greed. Um, and we see that in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. It points us to a right thinking of contentment. 1 Timothy 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So God wants us to see that riches are a gift from him, and he takes care of his people. Not only does he provide, but sometimes we're given even more. Proverbs asserts that God blesses his people with material gain. Look at Proverbs 10.22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. This is Proverbs 10.22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Um, we see here that God is the source of our wealth. In Deuteronomy 8 and 1 Chronicles 29, we also see that God is the source of our wealth. In Deuteronomy 8.18, we see it says, You shall remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So any wealth we acquire, we should have an attitude of gratitude because it's all from the Lord. He has, by his mercy, blessed us. Go to Proverbs 3. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, we need to remember after we read Proverbs 10 and Proverbs 3, um, remember it's a proverb. They're snapshots of reality. They're general true principles, but not promises. A statement like Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10 is not a formula for success. Um, if I just honor him and give him some of my wealth from the first fruits, well, then my, my bank account will just be bursting with wealth right? That's like, that's what you can get. Now it could happen. God could chose to do that, but it's not promised. But how do we know this is true that it could happen? Well, the wicked have money. In fact, the really wicked people have lots and lots of money. They're, they aren't honoring the Lord and yet they have money. So God can even fill the barns or the wicked. God is the giver of blessings. Our topic tonight, money, is always a blessing from God. But he blesses the righteous in other ways as well. Many of us can list blessings the Lord has given us, our families, our church, our health. But the biggest blessing that we, the righteous, can ever receive from the Lord is his son, Jesus. Having Jesus gives us eternal life. All of last week's lesson, right? Picking the road to lady wisdom leads to life. Um, let's look at Proverbs 10, 16. Proverbs 10, 16 says, The wage of the righteous leads to life and the gain of the wicked to sin. That was, that was like last week's lesson. 
Proverbs talks about how the righteous man earns money. He earns it through hard, steady, diligent work. We see this in Proverbs 12, 11, 14, 23, 13, 11. Um, but in Proverbs, also in Proverbs 10, 4, it says, well, I'm trying to make you see the Proverbs. Let's go to Proverbs 10, 4. Just look back a little. A slacked hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Or look at Proverbs 21, 5. There's going to be a lot of page sounds in this recording. Um, 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So if you are honest, hardworking person who devotes himself to his work to the Lord, who cares for the poor, doesn't cheat or steal, you will, generally speaking, prosper. And I mean, anyone who's had a job knows you show up, you get paid. You don't show up, you don't get paid. In fact, you could be fired if you don't show up enough, right? That is a general truth, but that general truth we see all the time. You work hard, you will get paid for it. If you're hardworking, honorable, steady at it, you will get paid. And that is one way the Lord blesses us. As we continue in Proverbs 3, because we've read from Proverbs 3 already. There's a lot in Proverbs 3. Um, we read that wealth is the consequence of wisdom personified as a woman with gifts. So go to Proverbs 3.15. Proverbs 3.15 and 16 says, She is more precious than jewels. This is wisdom we're talking about. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. The Proverbs say here that God can give you monetary blessings if you are wise. Now, an example of where God chose to bless with wealth due to wisdom is actually Solomon's life. In 1 Kings 3, um, Solomon is a new king, and God like, asks him, what would you like? And, I mean, can you imagine God asking you, what would you like? That's like bigger than three genie wishes, right? So, <laughs> but Solomon... God gave him wisdom to say this, but Solomon didn't ask for anything other than give me the knowledge and wisdom and how to lead your people. And God says back to Solomon in 1 Kings 3, I will do that and I will also bless you with wealth. So sometimes wisdom leads to wealth. Romans 9, that chapter is all about God's sovereign choice. So if you're like, man, I'm so jealous of Solomon. It's not because Solomon did anything. You see, God, it's all his. So he has the prerogative to do whatever he wants with what is his. Verse 18 in Romans 9 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you go to the New Testament in Matthew 20, it's the parable, the first 16 verses of the laborers in the vineyard. It's where... Um, the vineyard owner hires somebody at, like at the beginning of the day and says, I'll give you this amount. And then a little bit later, he hires someone and goes, and I'll give you this amount. And it's the same amount. And like as it goes through and there's even an hour left or something of the day, he hires someone and gives them the same amount as the first one. And man, when I was a kid, the first time I read that, I'm like, that's not fair. Like I missed the whole point of what it was talking about because I'm looking at it in the eyes of the worker. But you know what? The whole point of that parable is, it's the man's field, and he can do whatever he wants with it. It's his. It's his stuff. And that's 
that's what we see here. All wealth, everything that there is, it's God's. And he can do and distribute it however he wants. Um, think about Abraham in Genesis 12. There were no people of God until the Lord went, uh, you, Abraham, I'm picking you. Not because he was handsome, not because he was smart, not because he was wealthy. God picked Abraham because he just wanted to. He showed mercy on Abraham because he just wanted to. Abraham didn't do anything. Abraham didn't even know who he was. And so God will, it's his prerogative to do what he wants with his stuff. God wants us to see that riches are a gift from him and he takes care of his people. He provides. Sometimes he gives more, but also monetary blessings are limited and not lasting. At the end of your life, you could be the richest person in your family in your community, or even the world, and it means nothing. When you die, all that you've accumulated doesn't help you in any way. Proverbs 11.4. Let's look at Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Your wealth is worthless on the day of judgment. When you die, no matter if you choose the path of folly and reject God's wisdom or you choose the path of wisdom and embrace God, your wealth can do nothing for you. It cannot alleviate your punishment in hell and it doesn't elevate you in heaven. The Bible says in John 14 that Jesus is repairing all of us mansions. In heaven, we will not be thinking or focusing on the things we think about now. We will not be concerned with what we're concerned about here. All we will be doing is we will have this proper aligning of thinking of Jesus and God in the way we should, and we will be worshiping him. God gives riches to his people to teach them about what really matters. First, we saw that blessings of wealth are from him. And now point two, God wants us to be wary of loving riches. And the principle here is love God, not money. The most important principle tonight that we read out of God's word is that wealth is not the most important thing. Rather, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we've literally been saying that the whole time we've yeah. been studying this book. So it's kind of good that there's consistency. Yeah. Like I'm checking myself here saying there's, con there's consistency. We saw that in Proverbs 1 and in Proverbs 9, 10. Knowing God and walking with him is the ultimate experience in life. His wisdom is more valuable than silver or gold. The treasure that he offers is his followers endures forever. I have seen that people invest their time and money in what their hearts most treasure. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Many in our materialistic world place ultimate value on money and on the possessions and experiences it can buy. Look at Proverbs 16, 16. Proverbs 16, 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. How much better to get wisdom than gold? Here the Proverbs tell us that God's wisdom is better than any earthly treasure. We can obtain God's wisdom through his word. Scripture also teaches us that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified in Colossians 2.3. Colossians 2.3 says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
And we last week we learned that Lady Wisdom is Jesus, is an example of Jesus, right? And so this shouldn't be surprising. You should be like, yep, that's consistent with what we've been taught. So we should pursue Christ and, and the wisdom of God's word the way that unbelievers pursue money. If a prospector is convinced that there's gold in a certain area, he doesn't have to be prodded to go search for it. His love for the gold motivates him to get up early and dig hard. In the same way, we truly believe God's word contains the treasure of wisdom by which our lives are enriched. We will gladly find the time to read it. We will dig deep through study and meditation so that we can find the nuggets of understanding that will enrich our souls. Not only do we see um, we should love God over money, but the love of money will ruin you. Look at Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Money in itself isn't evil. Proverbs does not condemn wealth or money. The Bible does not condemn wealth or money. It just teaches us how to be wise with it. It cautions us what money may do to us if, when we're using it. But the love and the worship of money just may ruin you. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here's some examples of those who loved money and were ruined. Okay, probably you think of Achan in the Old, in the Old Testament. Um, this is in uh, Joshua 7, I think. When the Israelites conquered the city of Jericho, God told them that they had to put all the silver, the bronze, the iron, all the bounty from Jericho into the Lord's treasury. But Achan of the tribe of Judah kept some of the treasure for himself. He knew he was not supposed to take anything for himself. And because of what he did, God punished Israel and made them lose against I, I think that's how you say it, in the next battle. When his sin was discovered, Achan himself, his family, and the possessions he stole were stoned to death and burnt in the valley of Acre. Achan's greed of money was responsible for his ungodly action. We go to the New Testament. There's the example of Judas. The Bible shares the story of someone who exhibited the love of money in his life. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's the historical figure who became the victim of the love of money that was ruined. Judas at the time was appointed to be one of the disciples of Jesus. Um, he didn't have a malicious intent to betray Jesus for money in the beginning. That, but as time went on, Judas... This greed for money grew. It was a weakness he had. He became a lover of money. In those days, people used to contribute money to Jesus' ministry. The contributions were put in a money box, which was entrusted to the, to the keeper of it, who happened to be Judas. Being a lover of money, Judas began to steal money from the money box entrusted in his keep. We see that in John 12, 4 through 6. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having, char having charge of the money bags, he used to keep himself to what was put into it. 
And so Judas is a, an example of somebody who was greedy for money and not content with what he had, and he stole from Jesus. Um, and then obviously the 30 pieces of silver he sold Jesus for um, when uh, he betrayed Jesus. So he was a thief, a traitor, and ultimately his, tra his treacherousness led to Jesus' murder. But, this is very sad, but how, let me give you a story of hope with someone who had the love of money. When Jesus was passing through the city of Jericho, he got to a place where there was a sycamore tree. And, and upon looking on it, he saw Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. He was very short. Yes, the wheat. So, <laughs> yes, he was short. And so he couldn't see in the crowds to see because he wanted to see Jesus too. So he climbed up a tree, right? We all know the story. And Jesus saw him and said, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house. I'm going to sing the song, not quote the verse like I should. <laughs> we find this in Luke 19. <laughs> so Zacchaeus came down and he took Jesus into his house with joy. Um, in his house, Zacchaeus stood up and Jesus said, Behold, Lord, he says, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have defrauded anyone of anything. I'll restore it fourfold. We see this still in Luke 19.8. The confession, excuse me, of Zacchaeus briefs us on his story. So we know that what people called him, that his bad reputation, like he confirmed it. Zacchaeus, like Judas, was guilty of the love of money, but he was, but he encountered Jesus and saw Jesus for who Jesus is. He repented of his greed and theft and made things right by giving back four times what he stole. Zacchaeus is a story of God opening the eyes of a sinner and giving him the ability to see his need for a savior and the depths of his sin. Zacchaeus went from a greedy thief to a generous giver because of Jesus. So there's hope. When we have sin, there is hope. God gives riches to his people to teach them about what really matters. The blessings of wealth are from him. Don't love riches. They don't last. And point three, God wants to use riches to bless others. Go to Proverbs 14. We'll look at Proverbs 14, 31. Then we'll jump to 19, 17, and then 22, 9. <laughs> if you want to, but I will. Okay, so in these verses, um, we see God wants us to use riches to bless others, we are to give generously to those in need. So 1431 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. That means God. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. 1917. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 229. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Scripture places a great deal of emphasis on being generous to those who are in financial need. If you think about the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law made provisions through various means for people who are in need. Think of like the gleaning, right? Um, we see this in Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 14. But if you read Leviticus 23, 22, it says, And you will reap the harvest of your land, 
You shall not reap your field right to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This also plays into God always providing for his people, Mm -hmm. right? So he can use us to help provide for others. Now, the, the Mosaic law also included strong obligation for people to help their relatives who are in need. We see that in Leviticus 25. Now, if we jump to the New Testament, we see um, that in the New Testament, there's the major characteristic of the early church was their care for widows and others who were poor. We see this in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6, Galatians 2, James 1. A mark of a true believer is his active desire to help the poor. We see that in Ephesians 4 and in 1 John 3. The major fundraising campaign in the first century church was not for the purpose of constructing buildings or even sending missionaries, but for supporting the church in Judea during a famine. We see that in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16. And also in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Believers willingly made great sacrifices in order to help one another. Scripture contains guidelines for our giving to those in need. We have a particular responsibility to help our family members. Needy widows should be helped by their relatives if possible. But if not, the church is to come and help. Um, We see that in 1 Timothy 5 and in 2 Corinthians 8. It tells us that none of God's people should be destitute, so the church should ensure the basic needs of the members, their need, the needs of the members are met. Paul also warns not to give to those who are unwilling to work or who are manipulators, because by giving them money, we enable their sinful lifestyle. We should also set some money aside specifically for God's agenda. To do this generously as an act of faith. Look at Proverbs 3.9. All right, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, right? So we also see in 1 Corinthians, this in 1 Corinthians 16. While it's important to help those in need, it's, a, it's biblical to support those who are engaged in ministry for the Lord. So in the Old Testament, the priests and Levites who served in the holy place were supported through the tithes of God's people or through the, um, the, the food, the animal offerings, how some of it was supposed to be not burnt up, but put aside for um, the priests and Levites so they could eat. In the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, 9, the same way the people provided for the priests and Levites, so should the church provide for its pastors. To support this, Paul twice references the command of um, to muzzle the ox command not to muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, meaning that the animal that is laboring for its master should be well fed. Those two times he references it is in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. So too should we give generously to the Lord's work so that those who serve us will be well supplied. Logistically, that is the need in our local church to do ministry. We also do well to support missions and evangelistic efforts. Paul talks about this in Romans 10. It's a privilege to give generously and to and get to participate in the spread of the gospel and the building of the universal church. Jesus and his disciples received financial support to carry out their ministry in Luke 8. Paul on his missionary journeys was grateful to God for the churches in Macedonia financially supporting him. And we see that in Philippians. So how much should we give? 
Well, we have freedom and, and responsibility in the new covenant. All we have belongs to God, and we need to use it all to glorify him. We see that in Acts 11 and 1 Corinthians 16. They tell us to give proportionately to how God has blessed us. It's to come from our first fruits, as Proverbs 3, 9 states. We should be willing to give sacrificially, like 2 Corinthians talks about, but we are especially to give sacrificially in light of Christ's sacrifice. We also should give cheerfully because it is a privilege to participate in the Lord's work. Our giving is an act of faith as we make financial sacrifices out of the belief that our resources will be better deployed in serving the Lord than enhancing our lifestyle. God can accomplish all things without our money, but he allows us to participate in his work. This unites his people in love and glorifies him. Ultimately, our faithfulness in giving to the Lord's work will be rewarded, for we are storing up imperishable treasures in heaven. We see that in Matthew 6. So God gives riches to his people to teach them about what really matters. The blessings of wealth are from him. Don't love riches. Use riches wisely. And lastly, imitate Christ who paid your debt and made you rich. Proverbs 22-7 tells us the foolish take on irresponsible debt. We also read that it is most foolish to make yourself liable for the debts of others since it can lead to your own financial ruin. That's in Proverbs 6 and in Proverbs 22. Yet the scriptures proclaim that we are all owed a debt of sin that we could not pay. The enormous debt that we were owed, that we owed could not be paid by us, but only through a costly death. Romans 6.23, very famous verse, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, who was sinless, willingly left heavenly glory and took on our impoverished human nature. He then took all of the guilt of our debt on, of sin on himself and died in our place. This is 1 Peter 3.18. He willingly paid that infinite price in order to satisfy God's justice and thus enabling us to escape the eternity in hell that we deserve to pay. What amazing love. That's why I picked amazing grace. That God, the Son, should allow our sin to be imputed to him and then bear the penalty for us. But his kindness doesn't end there. Not only did he pay our debt, but he also makes us rich. This is um, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Not only was our guilt imputed to him, but his perfect righteousness has been imputed to us so that we may be found rich found in him having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's Philippians 3. Christ has enriched us so that when God looks on us, he sees not merely us just being innocent and debt-free, but as being rich in the perfect righteousness of Christ. As a result, God treats us as if we had kept the law perfectly. Ephesians 1 tells us that God adopts us into his family. The gospel should change how we live. Paul tells us those of us who have received such grace should imitate Christ by being compassionate and generous. Because Jesus willingly gave up his life for us, we should gladly use our earthly resources to bless our brothers and sisters who are in need. God gives riches to his people to teach them about what really matters. <laughs>